one of the primary roles I feel that I have here is actually to help raise up and to train and to develop and to release uh, the many gifts and the many talents that we have here in the body. And so that's why, you know, we see a plethora of people that are actually speaking into uh, the series and bringing forth the word from Sunday to Sunday. And one of those I'm so excited about, Jeffrey Moore is going to be bringing the word this morning in Revelation, the third installment of our Revelation series. Now, if you're here with us today and you're new, uh, we are in a series in the book of Revelation. And uh, I hope that does not scare you. It's not designed to scare you. In fact, quite the contrary, it's designed to actually invite us in to all of the beautiful, wonderful mystery, and more importantly, uh, The series is designed to draw our hearts to Jesus. It's designed to capture and fixate us with who Christ Jesus is and uh, and how he is the central figurehead of the book of Revelation, of the church, and of his kingdom both now and forevermore. And so, uh, so Jeffrey's going to be coming, but let me just tell you a little bit about who it is that's going to be sh- sharing with you this morning. I've known Jeffrey and Christine Moore now for over eight years, and uh, I'll never forget the first Sunday I ran into these guys. Um, we were in our old building back at the North Academy location, and, uh, and Jeffrey, just as he's dressed today, is just always just dressed with such uh, excellence, and th- this couple just stood out to me. By then, I think, what, Joshua was maybe two years old, three years old, and, uh, and as a young youth pastor, uh, walking the aisles and just connecting with people, uh, I was drawn to this family. These guys have become such not only great friends of ours, they have become such pillars and elders and uh, a father and a mother in this house. They are some of the most faithful, constant, consistent, generous, and uh, by way of hands, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if I ask you, how many of you guys have been recipients of the, of the generosity of the Moors? I'm sure many of you uh, could raise your hand. Not the least would be our missions teams. Uh, these guys have been strong supporters of AGM for many, many years. These guys are faithful to the word, and you may not know this, but they actually drive down here from Denver every Sunday. So you want to talk about... Uh, a faithful witness. You want to talk about being committed and being devoted. These guys drive down an hour and a half one way every single Sunday because of what they feel that God has put on their heart to be committed to this people and to be committed to this place. And so we really are uh, we really are blessed to have the Moors with us and we're blessed to receive from Jeffrey this morning. I'd like you to help me welcome Jeffrey Moore who's going to come and preach our third installment of the book of Revelation. Good morning, Antioch. I am so excited to speak with you this morning. Pastor Jay, thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this series as we study some of the themes in Revelation. The series so far has been, it's been powerful. Amen? It has been incredible. I've loved the messages that we've heard. And I can't wait to hear what we're going to hear even in future weeks. I want to say thank you, uh, especially to my beautiful wife, Christine, and my handsome son, Joshua, for helping me prepare for this message today. This is our third message in Revelation, and I want to start by reminding us of the three main purposes uh, that we've talked about for these series. Now, you're getting notes handed out, and uh, the points I'm making and the verses will be in your notes uh, that you can follow along with today. 
And our first purpose in this series is, number one, to see the church as the people of God commissioned to be a faithful witness to Christ and his kingdom. Number two, to equip our congregation to read Revelation confidently and historically. There's a lot of different translations and thoughts out there on Revelation. We want these messages to inspire confidence, not confusion. And number three, to strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ, especially in the tribulation that Jesus promised each of us would experience in our lives. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Jay did an amazing job in introducing this series. And if you've not had a chance to hear that yet, I really encourage you to go online to the website and listen to the podcast. He so eloquently set the vision for this series. I love when he said, Revelation chapter one, verse one says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. At its very foundation, Revelation was not written to reveal the Antichrist. It was not written to reveal the beast and the false prophet. Those are a part of it, but they're not the focus. Revelation was written to reveal Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Last week, Pastor Jade preached on follow the lamb. Jesus is only described as the lion once, but as the lamb over and over again because the way that God's kingdom expands on the earth is not like the kingdoms of the earth. It's not by force. It's not by capturing people and and forcing them to submit to the Roman Empire. Pastor Jade said, God rules and conquers by laying his life down and then inviting us into his royalty to be witnesses to his glory. God's kingdom expands because Jesus laid down his life, being a faithful witness even unto death. And he became a model for how we're going to live our lives Uh, as faithful witnesses today. Today, we're going to turn our attention to this topic of faithful witness. We're going to look at the seven churches in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. The context here is Jesus was giving individual messages to those churches. We're going to look and we're going to see areas where uh, he encourages them where they're already serving as a faithful witness and where he calls them up to a higher level in areas where they'd actually become a false witness. We're going to contrast those words today, those phrases, faithful witness, false witness, faithful witness, false witness. So be listening for that. Through these churches, we're going to see what it means to be a faithful witness of Jesus. As we do, there's two verses that I want to point out and use to kind of guide our time this morning. The first one we've already seen in Revelation 1.5, where John calls Jesus the faithful witness. So we've got the model of Jesus, and then moving to uh, Acts 1.8, where Jesus tells us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we're going to explore these concepts today. Jesus as our model, and then our responsibility to be faithful witnesses. When we're done today, you're going to better understand four things. What is a witness? What does it mean to be a faithful witness? We'll see the model that Jesus set as a faithful witness and how our witness fits into the uh, the context of the larger kingdom of God. I want to begin by reading the word uh, before I pray, and I'd like to ask you to stand uh, as I read the word this morning. This is going to serve as an introduction for our text. And I'm going to begin in Revelation 1, verse 9, Revelation 1, 9. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. And this is going to give us the the context for what we're going to uh, study today. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos 
on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning to share your word with your congregation, with my friends. Father, cause me to be a faithful witness to the words that you have given me. Lord, they're going to hear my voice this morning, but I pray and I pray deeply that they would hear your words, your message this morning. Cause all of us to be more faithful witnesses to your glory and your fame until the whole world hears and knows that you are the King of kings and the God of gods. Holy Spirit, empower me to this purpose this morning of being a faithful witness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. And we're going to get to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 in just, just a minute. But first, let's talk about this word witness itself. If we're going to be faithful witnesses of Jesus, it makes sense that we understand what the word really means. The dictionary defines witness like this. Number one, a person who has seen or can give first-hand evidence of some event. Number two, a person who testifies, especially in a court of law, or bears witness to events or facts within his own knowledge. And number three, to see, hear, or know by personal presence and perception. So this is very straightforward, that to witness means to tell what you know, what you've seen of what you've experienced. And right away, we have to understand that the concept of truth is strongly connected to witness. Why is that? Well, if you've ever been to a courtroom situation with witnesses, you know that you want faithful witnesses, not false witnesses, uh, especially on your side. A faithful witness is one that testifies to the truth of what they've seen. Now, of course, the Bible was written well before the dictionary. So this is where all these concepts originate to begin with. When we turn to the Bible, we find that faithful witness is really important to God. I think of verses like in the Ten Commandments. We often paraphrase uh, commandment number nine as don't lie. But it actually says, don't bear false witness. Don't carry false witness. Be a faithful witness. But it's even deeper. Turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, and I'm going to read uh, verses one through three uh, from the NIV this morning. 
And it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. This concept of faithful witness is so important to the Father that he has built it into creation. He has, he has put it right into the very created order of things that the stars, the planets, the heavens, they're the ones that declare the glory of God. But get this. Stars have a voice and they're a witness because of their existence. But you and I are a part of that, that creation as well. And we can witness in ways that the stars never could. The stars have never sinned. They don't need a savior but we have one and we can witness to that part of God. All of creation is a witness to God, but for most people, you and I are the clearest witness that they will ever have. So to witness means to tell what we know. To be a faithful witness is to tell the truth about what we know. And Jesus made this very easy for us in John 14 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everyone say, Jesus is the truth. Amen. Truth is a who, it's not a what. Jesus is the truth that we witness to. And we are most faithful in our witness when we walk most closely with Jesus. Let me say that again. We are most faithful in our witness when we walk most closely with Jesus. But witness is not just words. Witness is more than words. It's also how we act. And so what are some of the actions that, that what are some of the marks of a faithful witness? I think of verses like John 13, 35, where Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. Love for one another is one of the marks of a faithful witness. Uh, in fact, all of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these actions, these ways that we can act toward others, these are all marks of a faithful witness. Witnessing is not just the words we use, but it goes deeper to how we live, how we practically demonstrate God's love to others. Are we patient? Are we kind? Are we loving? Our actions often speak louder than our words do. I want to share a personal story with you to illustrate this. Several years ago, I started a new job, and at first it was really good, but after a while, I realized that the boss that I was working for was frankly terrible. Now, we've all had bad bosses. This is the kind of guy that everyone's walking on eggshells around him because one moment he's happy, the next moment he's exploding at the smallest thing. He's demanding. He was critical. This is the kind of guy. So uh, there was one time where I was down in Louisiana, and I was doing some field work, and it was, it was exhausting, frankly. I'd been down there for over a month, uh, away from home, away from my family, I was doing this work, I'm working 16 hours a day or more, often the night shift. I was tired. I was very tired. And I was getting tired of doing the hard work uh, for this man that I really didn't have a lot of respect for at the time. And I, I remember distinctly it was a Thursday because I was scheduled to fly home the next day. But my boss had a way of changing my ticket, airfare, uh, on me and then calling and saying, hey, uh, you're not coming home tomorrow, it'll be next week. So I was, it was a Thursday and I was waiting, waiting, waiting to get his phone call to find out, was I going to get to come home the next day or not? The longer I waited, the more frustrated, the more angry I got. I began venting to the Lord about this situation. And he was faithful. He brought a verse to mind. And the verse that he brought was Colossians 3.23, which says, whatever you do, whatever work that you do, do it 
as unto the Lord. Work hard as unto the Lord, not as un, unto men. Now, that's a great verse, and it definitely fit the situation. But I'll just be honest with you. It wasn't the verse that I wanted to hear in that context. And so I began discussing this with the Lord also. And I said, Lord, look, if I was actually working for you, I would do whatever you ask me to do because I trust you, because I know you, and because you know me. You know what I can handle, and you have my best at heart. But I don't trust this guy. I don't trust this guy. I don't. And the Lord said something to me very clear and very profound. He said, my son, I didn't ask you to work hard as unto me, only if your boss was good. I ask you to do it anyway. And in that moment, something in me broke, something that needed to break. And my attitude began to change toward my boss. Sure enough, within a minute, he called and said, I need you to come back next week, not tomorrow. What else could I do but say yes? And I did. But when I got back to work, something interesting happened. I found that my heart had changed toward him, so much so that I began to pray for him. I would drive to work 30 minutes every morning, just praying for him, everything I could think of, for his business, for his family, for anything I could think of. Lord, bless him. Draw him near to you. And I've told you this long story to get to this point right here. People began to notice. Coworkers began to say, how are you doing this? How are you walking through this difficult situation with such grace and so well? And of course, the only answer was Jesus, and that's what I told him. And because of that, it opened doors to talk to people about Jesus that were never interested before. People that said, you know, I don't even believe in religion, but this is working for you, and I've, I've got to think about it now. It opened doors, and that's what our witness does. Our witness opens doors for opportunities that we can talk with people and share the love of God. And sometimes that's our actions. It's not just our words. How we shine Jesus in the midst of difficult situations. Now, I said earlier, Jesus is our model. And there's a verse that really shows how Jesus uh, modeled this. I think it really kind of highlights uh, this concept. Turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're going to begin reading in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I think this is an amazing model that Jesus is showing us, where Jesus fixes his eyes on the Father, he fixes his gaze on the Father to see what the Father is doing. And that's what we do. We fix our eyes on the Father to see what he's doing. And whatever he's doing, whatever he's saying, that's what we do. That's our model. When we begin to, when we begin to do this, we realize something. And that is, we cannot do it alone. We must be empowered to be faithful witnesses. I love what Pastor Jade said last week. Without the Holy Spirit... Following the Lamb is impossible. Jesus himself was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the, the Spirit empowered Jesus to be a faithful witness. And the Spirit empowers us as well. Now, we're going to get to Revelation 2 and 3, I promise. I want to look at one more verse that ties together everything we've just talked about so far into one verse. It's just a few chapters later in John, chapter 15. John 15 
and we're going to read in verses 26 and 27. The context here is Jesus is talking to his disciples on the very evening before he was arrested and crucified. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me since the beginning. Here we see the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth, and we've already talked about how truth is so connected, so strongly connected to witness, to faithful witness. And number three, we bear witness to Jesus based on our relationship, our closeness to him. Witness in word and deed, faithful, true, filled with the Holy Spirit, witnessing to the glory of the Father, even unto death. This is our calling. I suppose I could end right here, but... Nah, I'm going to keep going. All right, let's move on and look at the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and see what else we can learn about faithful witness. As I prepared for this message, I discovered uh, a lot of interesting things about the cities where the churches were located. I want to highlight that these churches were real live churches. They had real actual people uh, inside that Jesus is writing to. Now, I'm a geologist, and I can't imagine using, uh, making a presentation without using a map. So, I've got one for you. This is a map of the Roman Empire around the time that these um, letters were written, Revelation was written. And uh, you can see that Rome is over here in, uh, in Italy, and you can see in purple how it's spreading out around the whole Mediterranean Sea, this part of the world. We're going to be focusing in on the little red circle here. Uh, back then, it was in an area called Asia Minor. Today, it would be in, in uh, western Turkey. Okay, let's go to the next map. So we zoom in there, and we see uh, down the very bottom the island of Patmos. That's where we just read that John was exiled because of his faithful witness, right here in Patmos. And then we read these letters, uh, we see the other churches in the cities that we're going to be referring to in, in the circles, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. And here's something really interesting that I didn't know until I studied for this message. You see this list of cities, and you may first think, oh, it's just some random list. Watch this. Go to the next map. These cities were along a trade route. Okay? So when a courier would have taken the book of Revelation that John wrote on the island of Patmos, the first place he would have gone was to Ephesus. And then from there, there was a route right to Smyrna, and then the Pergamum, and on down the line to Laodicea. It's not random. It's detailed. It's precise. Jesus is speaking to the people of that time, right to those cities. It's very, very clear. I also get a strong sense uh, of how Jesus' words, how closely Jesus' words were connected to the actual realities of these cities. I want to give you three examples. The first one is in the city of Thyatira. Uh, we're going to read that Jesus describes himself as the one with the feet of bronze. Now that might seem a little bit random until you learn that in Thyatira there were all kinds of trades, including skilled metal workers. And so they were used to working with brass, with bronze. And so when Jesus said, described himself like that, they would have a very clear picture of what that looked like. In Laodicea, he calls them lukewarm. And again, that might seem a little bit random until you learn that their freshwater source was muddy. And they got their water from a nearby hot springs from an, via an aqueduct. So their water supply was always lukewarm when they arrived in the city. 
So when Jesus used that as an analogy, they would have understood exactly what he was talking about. Also in Laodicea, uh, they were very prosperous. They had a medical school that had developed a a salve, uh, an ointment for eye conditions. Yet Jesus says to them, look, you think you're you're putting your trust in your your physical uh, solutions, but I'm telling you that spiritually, you need to buy spiritual eye salve from me for your spiritual sight, for your spiritual condition. So these messages are not random. They're very detailed, precise uh, messages to the seven churches. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jade said, These, um, Scripture has one intent, the original intent, but it can have many applications. We first have to understand that it was written, these messages were written to real people in real churches. Yet the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God because the, the Word of God is living and active. And the Holy Spirit can speak to us through these messages today. So we're going to look at just a few highlights uh, from these messages to see what we can learn. Each of these messages follows uh, a very similar template. I'm going to go through the message to the church in Ephesus uh, as an example, and we're going to just hit some highlights on, on the others. So let's look uh, at the message to Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As we go through these churches, I'm going to give you what I believe is the key Uh, the key message for us today, the key thing that we need to focus on uh, in these messages to the churches. And the key for Ephesus is they were hardworking. They were were doing a lot of good works, but they had forgotten why. They had forgotten why. They had forgotten their motivation and what was motivating them or should be motivating them toward these good works. Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus is using some of the pictures that John already saw earlier in the vision in chapter one that we read about to uh, connect himself to the people there uh, in this city. And he's saying, hey, look, I am the one, the lampstands were the churches. And he says, I am the one who is walking among these lampstands. I'm close to you. I'm not far off. I'm right here with you. He demonstrates this knowledge further, continuing in verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus starts his message by praising the people there and saying, look, here's some places where you're doing great. You are faithfully witnessing to my truth. Keep doing that. But then he says, here's an area of concern. So in verse 4, we read, But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. You're doing some great things, but you've forgotten me, your first love. You've forgotten why you're doing these things. Here's what I'm going to say about that. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was asked, What is the greatest commandment? Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And that you're familiar with this. He says, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he doesn't stop there. He gives him a bonus. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the key. There's a reason that the first and greatest commandment is first and greatest. Because if we don't keep that one first, it really doesn't matter if we keep the second or not. Keeping the second by itself really doesn't matter to God. 
Yes, he wants us to do good works. Yes, he wants us to be witnesses in the community. But first, 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 it's our relationship with him. It's our love for him. And then when we make him the priority, then he will lead us into the works that he wants us to do. He will lead us into being a faithful witness. We can't get those confused. They're first and second for a reason. Now, I love what Jesus says to the Ephesians next because he doesn't just identify a problem and then leave them hanging. He says this, continuing in verse five. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Again, Jesus is saying, you were, doing, you, you were walking the path well at first, but now you're not so much. You've forgotten me. Remember what you did at first. Continuing in verse five, he says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. To me, this highlights the seriousness of the message. Jesus is not telling them to repent as a suggestion. It's, it's a command. He's not suggesting what they might do. He's telling them what they must do. Now, we could debate about what does remove your lampstand mean. Does it mean close the church? Does it mean something else? I'm not sure. But here's what we need to think about. Why do you set a lampstand in place to begin with? Why do you put a stand with a candle on it? To give light. To bring light to the community. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand, and it gives light all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. The church is not to be just a token steeple on the corner. It is to be a lighthouse, a lampstand in the community, shining the light of God in the darkness. In Ephesus, there was plenty of darkness. One of the ancient, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world was there. It was a temple to the Greek god Artemis. But I hear Jesus saying to the Ephesians, I'm not willing to give this city over to the darkness. I want a lampstand here. I need men and women who will be faithful witnesses to me in this place, in this city, right where you are. What about us? Will we be that kind of people? Will we be that kind of church? Are we willing to speak the truth of Jesus in our sphere of influence. See, I can imagine the Christians of Ephesus might have wanted to move. They might have said, you know, this city's ungodly. We're just going to move out and be gone and be done with it. But Jesus didn't tell them to move. He didn't say move down to Pueblo or up to Castle Rock. He said, look, this is where the darkness is. I want my light here, right in the middle of the darkness. I want you to be a faithful witness for me right here, right where you are. Now in verse 6, he comes back to something that he appreciates about the believers in Ephesus. He says this, Yet you have, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, it's not clear today exactly what those works were, and that's not our focus today. But here's what I want to say. I want to draw this distinction between what Jesus says and what he doesn't say because it's very important. He doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans themselves. He says you hate their works as I do. I'm going to take the liberty of translating that for us today. Jesus doesn't say you hate the Muslims themselves. 
He doesn't say you hate the homosexuals themselves. He doesn't say you hate the Mormons themselves. He says you hate their works. Jesus never condemns people, but he never condones sin. Jesus was often called a friend of sinners, and in that he modeled how we can be, uh, how we can love people and yet still witness to the truth of God, that sin is wrong, it hurts people, and there's a better way. Speaking the truth in love, speaking against the works of evil, but showing God's love to those who may be trapped by evil. Jesus never condemns people, but he never condones sin. Now we're going to finish the message to Ephesus in verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who witnesses faithfully, I have a reward for you. There's something I want you to look forward to. This tree is the same tree that we see at the very beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. It's the tree we see in the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22 in heaven. To eat of it means to live forever, and that's one of the rewards for those who overcome. So to summarize this message to the Ephesians, the church there was working hard, but they were no longer motivated by the right reasons. They got their first and greatest commandment mixed up with the second. And Jesus' message to us, I believe it's the same today. First, love me with all that you are, and then let that love overflow and motivate your work. So this is the template for each letter. Jesus describes himself with a characteristic. He gives some encouragement. He points out an area that needs some, uh, some work, uh, and he tells them how to fix the problem. And then he gives them a reward. He tells them about a special reward for those who overcome. Now, with this in mind, we're going to look briefly at just a few other concepts uh, from the other churches. Now, we can make a full sermon out of any of these uh, messages to the churches, but today we're just going to look at some of the highlights. So let's look at the next church, uh, the church in Smyrna. Uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 9. The key to Smyrna is this. God is not afraid of tribulation, and we shouldn't be either. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but spiritually you're rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God sometimes allows persecution or tribulation into our lives for a season and for a reason. I do want to point out here something interesting, that in this particular case, the tribulation was not from God. He doesn't say, I'm bringing this tribulation to you. He says that Satan is about to throw some of you into prison. That's where the tribulation is coming from in this case. It wasn't coming from Jesus. You've probably heard the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's true. Often when persecution increases, the church grows much more quickly than it does otherwise. Jesus told us, promised us, in John 16, that in the world you will have tribulation. That's not an option. It's a promise. 
And I've come to believe that God is not nearly afraid of tribulation as we are. And part of the reason is because we are called to be witnesses. And witnessing during tribulation is powerful. It's powerful. Remember my story earlier and the witness that I was able to have because of the situation, because of the tribulation. Here's another example. I don't have time to read this story, but do you remember when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6? Why was that? It was because of his faithful witness, because he held on to the truth of God in the midst of others who were denying God. Yet God didn't rescue him from the lion's den. He was with him in the lion's den. And get this, if you read the story, his witness after the lion's den was even more powerful because the king that was in charge at that time, King Darius, pagan king, not godly at all, King Darius wrote a letter addressed to the whole world, and he said, in my domain, you will worship the God of Daniel because he is the one true God. That came about because of the tribulation that Daniel went through. So Jesus doesn't say to Smyrna, hold on, I'll deliver you, I'll rescue you, I'll rapture you out of the city before the tribulation comes. He says, look, I'm telling you clearly, the tribulation is coming. I'm warning you about it in advance. I'm letting you know so it's not a surprise. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to be faithful witnesses in the tribulation. I want you to stay faithful to the end. Because, because of our witness, God says my kingdom will grow. When tribulation comes, and it will, stay faithful because Jesus is always with you. The next city is Pergamum, and we're going to give you just the summary here for Pergamum, and that is this. There was a man there named Antipas who had been killed because of his faithful witness. So the persecution was pretty severe in Pergamum. Antipas is only mentioned once in the Bible, yet Jesus calls him my faithful witness. I love that. It's beautiful. It's like my faithful servant, my good and faithful servant. Sometimes witness requires sacrifice. Sometimes, even the ultimate sacrifice, just like our model, Jesus. Now let's look at the, uh, the city of Thyatira. Still in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 18. The key to Thyatira is that they were growing, but at the same time, they were, they were tolerating ungodly things inside the church. Starting in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent for sexual immorality. Jezebel. The way Jesus says you tolerate Jezebel really implies that she was actually in the church. She wasn't just in the community, but she was actually in the church. And the church could have done something about the situation, but they didn't. They were just tolerating her. Now listen, tolerance is a big concept in our society. You see um, the bumper stickers with different religious symbols that spell out coexist. Like, let's just tolerate. Can't we, can't we just all get along and, and just be tolerant? Let me say this. When it comes to the church, 
to God's holy church, tolerance of sin and evil in the church is not a kingdom concept. It is not. God has established his truth for a reason, and our lives work much more smoothly when we stay in line with that truth, even if it brings persecution. I do find here that God's grace toward Jezebel is stunning, really stunning. Listen to this. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to. She's a false prophetess inside the church, leading people into sin. And God says, I still am giving her time to repent, but she's refused to. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, where God gives space for repentance, he expects the fruit of repentance. As I have spent time preparing this message, the Lord has identified some areas in my life where uh, things that I have tolerated. And I hear Jesus say this morning, I don't want you to tolerate sin or evil. I want you to overcome it with my truth. Are you still with me? All right. I told you this is going to be quick. We've got three more churches, and then, and then I'll wrap up for this morning. The next church is the, the church in Sardis. The key to Sardis is that they were relatively peaceful there, but it wasn't God's peace. It was the peace of sleepiness. And Jesus says, wake up! Here's an interesting fact. Twice in the history of Sardis, their city had actually been attacked and destroyed specifically because their watchmen had fallen asleep at their post on the wall. So when Jesus says, wake up, or I'm coming like a thief, that immediately hit home. They knew exactly what he was talking about. That may be a message to someone here this morning that God is calling you to wake up to him. He's calling you to wake up to the deepness that's available. He's coming up to wake wake you up to the Holy Spirit or to spiritual things. Don't overlook that. The next city is Philadelphia. The key here is that patient endurance is another mark of a true witness. Philadelphia is a really interesting message because it's it's one of only two churches that Jesus has no message of correction for, only compliments. He compliments their patient endurance. He tells them to hold on. Whenever you find yourself in tribulation, and we will find ourselves in tribulation, hold on, endure, be patient, trust Jesus. And now we come to the church of Laodicea. I have to check my water to see if it's lukewarm or not. I suspect that Laodicea is the one that gets preached about most often. It's the one that's called the lukewarm church. Reading in chapter 3 now, uh, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. Now, many people focus on the lukewarm portion of this message, and I want to go a little bit different direction this morning. I want to focus on Jesus' words that discipline is a sign of his love. You know, I've taught my son Joshua that uh, as I've raised him, that my discipline is a sign of my love. If I didn't love him, 
I wouldn't care what he does. I wouldn't care how he acts. But I do. I love you deeply, Joshua. I'm pleased with you. And it's because of that that I'm willing to train my son through discipline when he needs it. When I see him going in a direction that's not healthy, that's not positive. Listen again to the words of Jesus. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Some of his words in this passage to Laodicea are hard. I mean, he says spiritually, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. But he's not saying these things to be malicious. He is speaking these words out of an incredible love. He's trying to rouse the Laodiceans to action. To call them out of their comfort to deeper commitment. And I think that's a message for us today just as well. It's okay to be comfortable, but don't let your comfort erode your commitment to Jesus. Don't let your comfort erode your commitment. Now, in your notes, there's a quote uh, from the book titled More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's what the last line says. The church is in the world. That was true then. It's still true today. The church should shine in the midst of the darkness. And to do that, we must be faithful witnesses. We must be in the world, but not of it. Earlier, I mentioned this contrast between faithful witness and false witness. I want to touch on that a little bit briefly, a little bit more uh, right now. There's a couple of individuals and groups that are mentioned in these passages as false witnesses. Uh, The Nicolaitans, Jezebel, it talks about false prophets and false apostles. We could spend a lot of time digging into their beliefs, analyzing uh, their exact beliefs and trying to understand those things. And I'm not going to do that, and here's why. Regardless of their specific exact beliefs, Jesus says they're wrong. They're counterfeits. They're not true. They're not the real gospel. Let me give you an analogy to uh, illustrate this, how I think we need to to, uh, approach counterfeit theologies. In the United States, the Secret Service, in addition to protecting the president, is is also given the responsibility of protecting the currency. So they're the ones that deal with counterfeiters all the time. And I'm told that when they train to do that, it's very, very interesting. The way they do it is they never, ever, ever look at a counterfeit bill. But they study the original so well, so closely, from top to bottom, front and back, that any time in the future when they see something that's not real they know immediately it's a counterfeit. And that is the perspective I think we need to have on counterfeit theologies. There's a thousand different ways to counterfeit the gospel. You can change a little bit here, change a little bit there. All of a sudden, it's not the gospel of Jesus anymore. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the original. And then anything else that's not the original will be very easy to see. Now, yes, there's a place for being wise in spiritual warfare. We do have an enemy that's trying to distract and destroy us. That is true. But here's the bottom line. If you're spending more time studying counterfeits than you are with Jesus, you are wasting your time. Focus your time and your heart's affection on studying Jesus, on spending time with him, on getting to know him. Now, sometimes faithful witness requires sacrifice. In the book by Eugene Peterson called Reverse Thunder, he talks about witness this way. He says, it is both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. The word used in the first Christian century for telling the truth about God in a given situation, it's the Greek word martus. Everyone say martus. Martus is translated into English as martyr, a person who loses his life telling the truth. Biblical people from the beginning were committed to telling the truth. The truth of God had been revealed, 
Now it must be said honestly, boldly, accurately. Telling the truth can be difficult and dangerous, but faithful witness requires sacrifice. It may mean that we do things differently than the world does, or that we abstain from things that the world calls okay. It might mean the ultimate sacrifice as a martyr, like Jesus, like Antipas, like so many others that have given their lives for the good news, for the truth of Jesus Christ. I'll be honest, when I think about the possibility of being a martyr, of losing my life or telling the truth of God, it's hard to comprehend in this country because it's just not a part of our existence today yet. But on average today, today, 20 people around the world will be killed because of their faithful witness of Jesus Christ. That means that since we've been sitting here in two hours, two people have died for the witness of Jesus. It's real. It's real. And sometimes witness requires sacrifice. We tend to do everything we can to prolong our life on earth. And there's a good reason for that. We want to fulfill God's purposes in our life. We want to fulfill God's purposes in our generation. But I'm telling you, there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger story that God is creating that we don't have the privilege of seeing it all yet. Our witness is just a tiny part of the Father's grand picture. Yet without it, the picture isn't complete. That's the value of witness. So let's talk about that witness, that big picture, just for a minute, just briefly. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This is the classic chapter recounting the people of faith since creation. Chapter 11, and we're going to read in verse 1 and 2. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. And this chapter goes on to tell of people like Abel. Abel. Abel was actually the first martyr for God's truth because he was killed by his brother Cain for speaking truth, for witnessing faithfully to God. The, the chapter goes on to talk about Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, many others who were faithful to God in their generation. It tells of their miraculous works, but it also tells of their tribulation. It says some were tortured, in prison, killed with the sword, and yet they remained faithful, not seeing the full picture, just seeing a small part, their part. Now let's pick up in verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Who are these heroes of the faith? The very next verse tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, faithful witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This message in Hebrews is the same as, message, as Jesus' message in, in Revelation 2 and 3. Put aside everything that gets in the way. Endure even when, especially when, there's difficulty and tribulation. Don't grow weary. There's a great cloud of, of witnesses surrounding us, looking on, cheering us on, because in, in God's divine wisdom, they're not made perfect without us. We are all together, the church universal, all the witnesses that have come before and all the witnesses that will come in the future. In closing, I want to illustrate this uh, with one last personal story. 
In 2012, my family and I, along with Tiffany Thompson, went to uh, India on a mission trip. And on our last day of the trip, we were looking for some souvenirs, and we ended up by mistake in a really expensive rug shop. Now, if you've ever seen uh, Persian rugs, you know they're very detailed, very intricate. Here's an example up here on the screen in a minute uh, that just shows, you know, they're very uh, incredible, and they're very expensive. And so we weren't really looking to buy a rug, and I was looking to get out of this shop. But the guy was describing to us the process by which the rugs are made. And it was very, very interesting. He caught my attention when he said, in that part of the world, making a rug is a family event. And get this, he says, the father of the family has the pattern in his mind for the rug. It's not written down, it's not drawn out. The father sees the pattern for the rug in his mind of what he wants it to look like. And all the family members sit around with their piece of thread. They're part of the puzzle. And when they hear the father, they put that piece into the loom. And he said, this was really amazing. He said, the father sings the pattern over the family. And the family listens for their part to put it into the loom. And they press it down. Then the next layer goes in. And they press it down. And the next layer goes in. That is an example of what witness is like. You may not see how your part fits into the big picture, but the Father, the Father has a plan. Do you trust him? Because he is good, and his plan is good. And when he calls you to witness, put yourself out there. Do it. Don't let that piece of the rug be blank. Because one day, we'll all step back, and we'll point to a, a, a spot on the rug and say, look, do you see that? You see that little spot? It's really small, but I put that in. I put that in. I heard the Father sing for my name, and I put that in. And without it, it would be, something would be missing. Something would be missing without my part of the witness and without your part of witness. Witness faithfully, just like Jesus, the way you speak, the way you live, the way you walk through tribulation with Jesus beside you, the way you speak the truth in love. The rug is a witness of what is in the Father's heart the vision that he sees. And no matter what else we find in Revelation as we study some of the themes, whether Jesus returns tomorrow or thousands of years from now, we get one chance to witness, and that is right now. Whether we are experiencing tribulation or peace, we are called to be faithful witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth who is Jesus Christ. We have one life to tell of the goodness of God, one opportunity to make him famous. Take it. Take it.